0: .NET Rocks, episode 1293, with guest Yuval Lowy Recorded Wednesday, April 20th, 2016. Hey, guess what? Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. We are in Richard's room at Dev
1: Intersection in uh, beautiful Orlando, Florida, and the weather is nice. Yeah, you can't argue with the weather, can you? No. And it was a bumpy winter, so it's kind of nice to be in sunshine, sunshine, sunshine.
0: And even plastic grass smells fresh down here. (laughs) I don't know.
1: I don't know how they do that. Well, it's a different grass, right? Because yeah. it's sort of tropical here. Like, regular grass would, wouldn't make it. It's very hardy grass. Yeah. It's big, bladed, sturdy stuff. Yeah.
0: Well, uh, Yuval Loewi is here. We're going to be talking to him very, very shortly. But first, we have a little business to take care of, Uh, starting with Better Know a Framework. Awesome. All right, dude. What do you got? All right. So, Richard, you and I were at Build. Yes. And... We had front row seats to all the announcements, and it was great. And then some little insider stuff too. Well, there was one announcement that a lot of people still don't understand or know about, so that's why I wanted to give it a little amplification here. Okay, it's Microsoft Cognitive Services. What? Cognitive Services, as in services for thinking? Well, APIs that do kind of scientific, you know, intelligent stuff like computer vision. We've done shows on computers. Yes, we have. Computer vision is essentially uh, identifying objects in photos and uh, identifying people and that kind of thing. Face recognition, mm-hmm. emotion recognition. Right. So you basically upload a picture of somebody's face and it sort of tells you what their mood is. It, it, we talked about Tim. How can be with that, with the connect where you can sort of get a sense of people's mood? Right. Um, speech recognition and speaker recognition, mm-hmm. like who's speaking. Uh, and what they're saying right there uh, you can do bing speech and bing spell check those are branded apis but language understanding and linguistic analysis this is part of the bot framework the bot right. framework uses this luis l-u-i-s which i believe is language understanding and it essentially takes typewritten text or you know text that comes from speech mm-hmm. and analyzes it to what its real breakdown parts are. And then can, based on that, call an API in your bot framework that will just take those verbs and nouns and uh, sort of distill it down, right? Yeah. Um, so all sorts of stuff. And, and, um, and the best part about these is they're free.
1: At least for now, I was going to ask it's like how much for these wonders you yeah, describe, yeah,
0: so I haven't gone into pricing, but they clearly have pricing, but uh they're in preview, many are available for purchase it's right. free to sign up, and when you're ready to scale, talk to us so it's a great model it's the azure models right sure you you start working, start building services, and then if you start making some money, perhaps, or you're scaling. It's the up. drug addict
1: model. Yes. First hit is free. That's right. Right, get get addicted to it. Right, show us. Well, right. get it doing something amazing. Right. and and then you know we'll talk. And the best part about it is, by the time they're asking for money, you're probably making. You some, would hope, yeah, yeah. but yeah. it's still. Let's face it, Microsoft has not been aggressive about the costs of things in the cloud. They've always been very cost effective, really. So it it is very interesting to think that these things are all now services.
0: So this is show 1293. So if you follow the pattern, 1293.pwop.me will take you
1: To to cognitive services. That's very cool. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 708, which I'm embarrassed to say is the last show we did with Mr. Lowy. Wow. Like better part of 600 shows ago. Wow. Uh, and this is from October of 2011. And we talked about being a business architect. Right. Just that whole idea. Right. Uh, although really, you know, you can't help. If you're going to talk to Yuval Loe, you're going to think about architecture very broadly. And the Mm -hmm. comments reflect that. This particular one is from uh, the pseudonym Control Craft. I don't know your real name, and I'm sad about that. But (laughs) we'll do our best to uh, get connected with you. He says, I love these 30K-foot flyovers and the vision of the potential future of our profession, which Mm. is absolutely what we talk Mm -hmm. about. It's part of creating the future we need. I wonder how the creation of tools for the business solution architect would develop the best, though. The discipline of the business solution architect would grow from education, with the first pioneers learning the principles on paper and doing the work by hand, so to speak, the way we did OMT by hand before case tools were there. Then those early business architects would build a demand for tools to automate their jobs. Alternatively, the tools would come out first, and the business architects would end up promoting the tools they prefer. In either case, what happens is something I've seen in the early days of software until now. Extracting requirements from domain experts who need little knowledge of the transformations and the boundaries of computing space that will model a solution is dynamic over time. Mm. Those people initially describe their desires in a way that a human thinks, which tends to involve serializing thoughts and the threads that wind through their activities without regard to structure or technology. As they work with developers, they change. And their exposure to the development process educates them. Sometimes this hinders their ability to think as domain experts and they attempt to define implementation details for you, which they're not very good at. Mm. But in any case, they are changed. So I see the business architects as something like that. And perhaps they will become interpreters for their colleagues in their business domain. It's a very astute observation there. Yes. B- basically bridges the software architects. Because my immediate thought when I think business architect is this software architect that understands business. Right. He's coming out of what if I'm a domain expert? Right. You know, who learns enough about software? To be able to talk to the developers in a meaningful way. Exactly. In any case, I don't think this discussion really put forth the idea that developers would go away, only that the form of developers we see now. Yeah, developers change over time. That's it what has. happens. And it has. I mean, that's without a doubt. You think, you know, the upside to having programmed for 30 years or coming on 40 years, which is disturbing, yeah. is how different programming has been decade right. to decade. Right. They migrate to new wilderness areas. That's a good line. I, I love like it. That. Yeah. yeah. And they leave a more civilized territory in their trail, <laughs> where once they dwelt exclusively for those hybrid professionals that continue to develop the next level, fashioned by the tools that were left for them. Mm-hmm. Mm. I thought it was a very neat comment. And yes, it
0: is. And, and I would like to go back and read that at a much slower pace than you read it, because <laughs> uh, there's a lot
1: of nuggets in there. It was dense, yes. Yeah. So, uh, Control Craft, thank you so much for your comment. A .dotnet Rocks mug is on its way to you. As long you, as we know who you are. Yeah, well, I'll send you a message, and we'll find out who you are. It'd be nice to put a name to the pseudonym. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a .dotnet Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at dot or via any of our social media, because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl
0: Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. We stir them into our coffee. Yuval Loewi is here. Hi, guys. I thought the first words out of your mouth would be,
2: I told you so. <laughs> <laughs> but now you're referring to a different episode where recorded, it even longer than that. That's yes. right. And, uh, yes. and what did you say back then? I believe I discussed every class is a service mm-hmm. and microservices. And every
0: class should be a service. That's, That's right. what you said. And we said, what? What no, are you talking t- about?
2: To your credit... You're actually one of the very few that indulged this crazy oh, thought that I have because everybody course. else said the guy's nuts, right? Right. Well, you at least said, okay, we know he's probably smart. What is going on? What right. has he been drinking sort of a thing, well, right? Well, you
0: know, that that's our job. We try to flesh out what people are saying,
1: you know, take that sound bite and dive into it. But the other aspect of that was at that time, because that was quite a few years ago, Yeah, being a service meant being wrapped in WCF. That's right.
2: And that ah. was pain. And so, we have to actually understand the motivation I had of saying every class should be a service and talking about using services at a very granular level, Mm -hmm. right? Right. And so, incidentally, what motivated me for going there was actually different than what motivates people today for going for microservices. Mm -hmm. We meet at the same place, but from different angles. Right. So, what motivated me was just examining the long history of software engineering, something you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. And... In general, in life, if something is good, more of it is actually better right. so why stop at the bunge of <laughs> a system and say, I have this big service and but I'm not going to use it inside right, right? so that doesn't make any sense no,
0: but your your general point was services have become too monolithic
2: no, no, that's what actually what modifies what motivates people today for using it, yeah, but what motivated me at the time was something else. It was understanding that in essence, if services are just the next step in a long journey that we've been going for many decades now Mm. if the service is the evolution of the component and the Mm. component was the evolution of the object and the object was the evolution of the function Mm -hmm. if you look at object you don't say i'm gonna have just one giant object as my application i'm not going to use object notation inside my application Sure, i'm not going to have just one giant component i'm not going to use components inside right if you look at say what we've been doing through the second half of the 90s and the early 80s with components, we componentized everything. Everything in .NET was a component. The yes. button was a .NET component and a text box and a form. And even the integer in .NET is actually a component. It's not a d-word in memory. It's a full-blown structure with lots of APIs and such. Sure, right? Right. And the reason is the, you want to take the benefits of components, the modularity, the ability to plug them into things and push them as far down in, as you can. Yeah. The problem space of services was the incredible complexity of the underlying plumbing that we need to support applications today or at the time. Right. And since plumbing is evil because nobody cares, the business doesn't care, the customer doesn't care. It's right. plumbing. It's plumbing. Yes, right. exactly. It's done. You it's figured ray. that out. Let, let somebody else deal it with us. So. Mm-hmm since plumbing is evil regardless of scope, it would be evil at the enterprise level when nobody cares. It would be evil at the system level, at the subsystem level, at the class level. So the only logical train of thought would be that everything should be a service so that even at the integer level, I would not have to see plumbing. I'd like to have transactional integers and secure strings and synchronized booleans. Now that's and crazy
1: <laughs> you said so t-
2: almost 10 years ago but that wasn't so crazy after i all. mean
0: i get the whole microservices
2: break them down make them ah, granular okay, but here's why it sounds crazy it sounds crazy but an integer service yes and here's why it sounds crazy it you want to put crazy? a network between me and my integers that's your folly <laughs> you are not thinking it from the right perspective. All right. So, so educate me. Obviously, if you just think about very granular services, let's just stop at the scope of a class, which still, is, even today, sounds a bit insane. Sure. The problem is that the technology you have at hand, say WCF or, mm-hmm. to a lesser extent, Web API and such, they are not geared for that level of granularity. Sure. Right. WCF was never designed to be uh, the new .NET. Yeah. It has that potential. Right? It was designed to be the gateway to systems, right? Mm-hmm. It has other things in it, but by and large, it's this gateway to this big system that you expose to the world. Mm. That's probably its greatest compliment. It's actually the Latin proof you should be using it at the scope of every class. Right. And the reason is progress is hardly ever made like an Edison light bulb. You have this goal and you chug along until you get to it. Progress is always incidental. You tumble between things and you try to do A, but you actually solve B sort of a thing, right? right? Okay. Classic example is, is COM. COM was never supposed to be a component object model. All Microsoft wanted to do in the early 90s was to put Excel inside Word. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's all actually they t- all they were trying to do. <laughs> that's all they were trying right? to do. Object right. linking and embedding. OLE was, was object e. linking and No, DDE was before that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah before OLE, they that's tried like to do Windows. DDE, and they tried to do DDX, and they tried to solve all of this but even with Excel inside Word and mod inside Excel and PowerPoint, even with a handful of application, the combinatorical spectrum here is insane. Yes. Mm. And you can't solve it as private cases of if constant Excel inside Word else. Right, DDE, DDE, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it just couldn't do it. So they became this monster of complexity, or 1.0, except they didn't call it 1.0 because yeah. nobody knew they're gonna kill it yet. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> nobody saw the history. That's, so it became this true. monstrosity of complexity. And they took this great architect at Microsoft, his name was Tony Williams, Mm -hmm. and he said, you solve it. Solve this now. Tony Williams was actually a nuclear engineer, by the way. Nice. Wow. And he realized that Excel Inside Word is the private case of a much general problem, which is the problem of componentizing software. How do you put, in a general way, a component inside its container? Yeah. How do you query its interfaces? What if you load it several times? How do you know how many times you have it? You have to start reference counting it. What do you deal how you deal with the security issues involved, right? It took a step back and solved that problem and that enabled them to define the specific interfaces of OLA 2.0, IOLA activation, I in place view and all of these things. Which actually worked really, really well. Which worked very well because the underlying abstract solution was correct. Yeah. And so they call it LED 2.0, but then they realized we actually solved a much broader problem, which is a problem of components. And right. they just called it COM. okay? Yeah. But they never intended to solve the general problem of component software, right? right. They want to just fix Excel inside Word, yes. okay?
1: And they did it so well, we forget that that used to be impossible.
2: Right? That's right. <laughs> That's, That's the right. joke.
1: Just like cutting pa- cutting and pasting between apps is yeah. actually kind of miraculous. Yeah, absolutely. But it's so trivial today. We don't even think it's a big And deal.
2: dropping an ActiveX control from vendor A and the form done by team B by yeah, vendor yeah. C, that's yeah. a miracle. It is, it's a right, miracle. Yeah. And
1: it works so well, it's plumbing.
2: Yes, yeah. and they solved all of that problem. So the Double CF team never intended to solve the general problem of... Service orientation I in see. respect of of modularity of services. I just wanted to solve the broken, the hopelessly broken problem of web service.
0: So when you when you say an integer should be a service, and I think, oh my god, what are you crazy? I'm thinking in terms of the service architecture we have today. Yes, and so and that's my folly. The, what, so what you're skewed. also
2: missing is so so. There's two things that's missing in order to utilize the vision. One is a technology that's utilizable in that context. Yeah, and the second is a taxonomy. Okay, so let's talk about the technology. You can't take this really, really heavy sledgehammer called WCF and start banging on every single class. Right. If you have, you know, two hundred, three hundred classes in your application, what would your main method look like? It right. would be the main method from hell. And your config file will be thousands of lines and mm-hmm. hundreds of proxy files. Nobody can manage an application this way. Yeah. So obviously it's a no-starter that way. Mm-hmm. The very second thing I did in WCF after hello WCF is a technique I call the Inpok Factory, which is a little widget in WCF that l- lets you convert a class to a service but without all the ownership overhead. There's no config, there's no host, there's no proxy, there's nothing. The syntax is actually almost the same as C Sharp. You don't say new my class, you say Inpok Factory my service. That was the first edition of my book that was published actually in 2007, but I did the technique in 2006. Right. The second edition of my book already contained... A complete polymorphic way of doing it a la C sharp. You say new my service, just like C sharp. But in fact, you've stood up a complete full blown service. There is no ownership overhead. There is nothing. It's, it behaves just like C sharp syntax and ownership wise, but it's a service and you pushed all the benefits of the services into a single little tiny class. So conceptually, if you have 200 classes, you can do a massive search and replace over your entire code. Now every class becomes a service. So without this kind of technology, it would be crazy to discuss it. Okay. But I had the technology for doing it. So basically, if I get you
0: right, the benefit here is you're moving away from assemblies and registration of, you know, something that's really tied to the platform to something that can be swapped out on another machine, on another place or, or or what have this you is just, this without is just, being platform this is, pl- I'm, see i'm technical this is why this i is gotta the know tip what the, of benefit the iceberg is. what you described so yeah. of
2: course services can be local and remote and everything else yeah but there's close to 20 other aspects that just kicked in if you're saying if you use this technique to say new my service mm. but that's the only thing you say just like c-sharp every call to that thing is now encrypted it automatically propagates its identity downstream it can also figure out who called it, it authenticates, and authorizes the calls. Be every every call is transacted. Yeah. Every call is synchronized. This class automatically jumped to the correct thread it needs to execute on. This class is discoverable. This class can be called queued or synchronously. And on and on and on. And All it, of these aspects just were just crammed into the scope of a tiny little class because I had that technology. Which, yeah. remember, I did it. This was the very second thing I did in WCF because to me that was... All there is to WCF. I yeah. never cared about the big my service to the to my service in, in the concept of uh, the the web API or the big service engines of the system. Right. To me, it was just the next step in a long journey of the next evolution of software engineering. Mm. Okay. And just like it didn't make any sense to stop at objects as a big system as an object, you want to push it as down as you could. This technology enabled me to push it down all the way. I would never say something as crazy like every class is a service if I didn't have a concrete way of doing it. Okay? Sure. Sure. I mean, this has been published in my book for more than ten years. Right. Okay. that's yeah. the first thing that demystifies.
0: So, okay? so and not only and just to repeat, not only did you sort of take away the binding to the hardware that you're running on, right? Because let's face it, if it's a service, it can run anywhere, and you you don't have to now have a Windows version and a Mac version and a Linux version or whatever. They just you, they just run.
2: Well. It, Un- unless you have something like .NET Core running on your Linux box, yeah. this wouldn't run on Linux. Yeah, yeah, okay? yeah. But uh, yesterday I had an interesting talk with uh, Microsoft about it, and they would want conceptually to have even WCF running on .NET Core. There's some yeah. technical and personnel issues involved in doing it, mm-hmm. but there's no technical limitation why it shouldn't actually that's, happen. That's what
0: I'm saying, yeah. yeah. And, and so not only do you, but all of the things that you just mentioned, and we shouldn't gloss over them, encryption, Uh, Security, security, transactions,
2: transactions, reliability, synchronization, discovery—all of these things just kicked in. All of
0: the and security within a particular server, so you can prevent somebody from snooping into RAM, looking at your your private details and figuring stuff out. It's much more than
2: that. Yeah. Typically, in order to attack you, they don't have to actually get inside your own box. They can compromise another oh, sure. machine right. sure. that was not protected, then but they I'm go saying, after your box. But I'm saying but you that have that level of protection yes. as well. Yes, so now every service is like this iron sphere that's mm. completely protected from the world, right? Mm. Just like we wanted to put service at the scope of the big system because we want to protect it, right? From security perspective. So all these benefits that used to be reserved to big, heavy systems... And I utilize the scope of a tiny little service. What's the overhead? This is actually faster than not doing it. Oh, come on now. Yes. (laughs) And I can prove it to you. One of the things that I did in my work on WCF, it was also longer than a decade ago, is I came up with the concept of transactional things. So I have transactional integers and transactional strings and transactional collections and transactional arrays and transactional memory. Okay? Yep. Okay. This is something that only now Microsoft is catching up to in the service fabric and the Azure service fabric. Okay, mm-hmm. now if you're saying, okay, that sounds insane. What do you mean a transaction integer using the DTC on every integer? Yes, this actually blows out of the water performance-wise, not using it. And the reason is the main utilization of transaction at the most granular level is as an error handling mechanism. Right. And so, if you don't, ultimately,
1: all it means to actually handle a transaction is just store a copy of the state before this process started. Before
2: things went bad,
1: so you can get back to
2: it. That's right. Now, if you don't use transaction, you have to infuse your code with if and else and try and catch and do this wig of error handling on right. everything that you do all the time. Transactions, the rollback only kicked in if something went bad, which is hopefully not all the time. Right. So if you actually do the benchmark of these things, it blows out of the water the alternative. Well, it looks more like stuff like Erlang. Right? Yes. And the, and, yeah. and the
1: actor model principles It just say, right. just let it oh, fail. Richard, you have Richard, no idea what you just said. Just I've blue. been talking about, I've been, what? Hey, Richard just, Richard just described the,
0: he just stepped in it, man. He, <laughs> yes, just, he just stepped into <laughs> you just
2: stepped so in it. So I've been doing things like the service fabric and the actor model with WCF for more than 10 years, right. because that's exactly what it enables you to do. In fact, that there is something else which you may not actually know. I put in uh, on top of WCF a framework called Service Model EX, which adds all the little toys on top of WCF. I already mentioned in Factory, and ability to wrap every class as a service, and a transaction collection, but there's lots of other things, which adds these very super-modern uh, software engineering aspects to WCF. And it's all there on top of WCF. The Service Fabric, which is the Microsoft new offering for doing services and microservices, right, has... Not even all of these things, but right. it has many of them. Hmm. Now, that means that these things are actually comparable. So if they're comparable, one would make them interchangeable? So what I did in the fourth edition of my book, along with my co-author, is that we have completely implemented the service fabric on top of service model X, So we can take hmm. all of the other service fabric and run it on my laptop right now in a tiny micro fabric. Mm-hmm. because we made it not just comparable, but interchangeable. So in order to move from the micro-fabric that we run on a laptop to the other fabric, we changed one namespace at the top, and it's completely utterly polymorphic and interchangeable, <laughs> right? Wow. And this is because, the, the, from a software engineering evolutionary standpoint, they're actually the same, they mm-hmm. provide the same things. And in fact, we have for even things that service fabric doesn't offer yet, but mm-hmm. it will actually mm-hmm. over time. And so that's exactly what you actually want to do with it, right? Yeah.
1: It's That's just, n- don't put all those little if-thens, all that testing. Oh, it's yeah. just unnecessary. <laughs> and, Let and it I'll, fail. Yeah, and right. then In roll fact, back.
2: If you think about service model EX. It's a form of a fabric. It's a, It provides sure. all these aspects that you really actually deal with. right? right you don't right. have to worry about with the healing of the software and all of these things. Nah, just just go away with it. Just
0: I think we should bring it back WS-star. <laughs> yes. Okay,
2: so what we
0: discussed so far... Wait, uh, wait, wait. Just for those listeners, that was a joke. Okay? <laughs> <laughs>
2: right, so what we discussed so far was the, the idea of pushing services to a very granular level... Doesn't make sense unless you have a supporting technology. Mm. Now Microsoft is jumping on the bandwagon of microservices now only because imagine that they have a technology that lets you actually do it now. Right. Okay. Yeah. So now they're on board. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But in fact, we had the technology for 10 years now. Sure. Okay. You just had to read my book for that. Right. That was the first hurdle of why it sound crazy. The mm-hmm. second hurdle was that you, in order to do decomposition into a system of services, you have to have a very strong taxonomy of what is a service. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm. Now, without a taxonomy, it doesn't make any sense because you end up with a box of broken parts, right? Sure. The classic mistake people have been doing since the dawn of time in software architecture is decomposing based on functionality. So if you look at the, the things you need to do, it can be list of functionality in a classic requirement spec 1.2.3 do A, mm-hmm. or it can be uh, uh a more uh, behavior like some user story and such, they map this to their building blocks. So I have a building block with A and a building block with B. Right. I'm doing billing here, shipping there, invoicing over there. If that is your architecture, you're already dead. Mm. That is death. Okay. Yeah. And the reason is it's a universal design rule that regardless of the system, this has nothing to do with software, features are always aspects of integration, never implementation. Right. I'm delivering this interview with you right now but there isn't a single box in me that says talk to Richard and Carl, right? right? I'm doing it by integrating my heart and my liver and my lips and my brain and my eyes, right? And we integrate uh, uh, an audio mixer and a few laptops. All of this is in front of us. It's it's integration that gives us this feature, okay? Uh, My car is a very simple feature, take me from A to B, but there's no box in my car that does that, right? My right, car has right. fuel pumps and fuel tanks and pistons, but there's no feature. I'm integrating all of these things into a feature, okay? Right. So once you understand that, the same is true with services. There should never be a service with a feature on top. That That's death. You can't actually implement anything this way. Sure. If you do it this way, you'll never be done because there's infinite number of things that I could actually do. And over time, I right. would do more and more of these things, right? right. So if you I... have
0: to break it down to the least number of, to the greatest number of parts without... Without Uh, becoming so, the way I'm saying it, you need
2: to decompose it into the smallest number of services that you can put together to satisfy any requirements, right? Right. right. For example, the our architecture, the human body architecture, was more or less done 100,000 years ago, long before anybody imagined dot networks, right? Mm -hmm. But we're still using the same components for this particular use case. Yeah. Okay. Right. And so, the question is, how do you get that kind of decomposition? So you have to start understanding that in software, in general. Every software system has a very consistent taxonomy to the architecture, okay? So, people always confuse architecture with design. So, I explain what I'm saying. I'm not talking about the design. I'm talking about the architecture. Okay. A mouse and an elephant have the same architecture, mm-hmm. okay? The design is totally different, by the way. Sure, but yeah. But they have the same architecture. Now, a mouse and a grasshopper don't have the same architecture, right. okay? <laughs> so, if you look at the taxonomy of the components of a mouse and an elephant, they have the same taxonomy, Okay. Right? And you could make the same observation about software services, okay? Uh, To use a body analogy again, my heart provides for me a very important service. It is Mm -hmm. to pump blood, Mm -hmm. okay? So in any mammal, we need to pump blood. So we have to have something that pumps blood, okay? So you have to recognize that before you design any mammal. You have to have that service, okay? So
0: you're saying we need to do the financial parts of our our systems first. (laughs) So uh, there's a whole business value
2: behind, there's a whole, actually, no, it's not a laughing matter. There's a whole rationale of how you map the added value of the business to these services, okay? So the second thing people miss when they're doing the decomposition into smaller and smaller services is without a very strong taxonomy behind how you do the decomposition, You are lost, right? You're just going to have another box of broken parts. And so I've had that taxonomy for more than 16 years. In fact, I noticed that taxonomy when I was a corporate architect in the late 90s. So in the late 90s, I was a corporate architect of a Fortune 100 company, and I managed the architecture department. And I interacted with, you know, a dozen divisions of three or four projects in each. And I noticed that in the abstract, I always give the same advice. Now, in specific, it wasn't the same advice. It was a mouse versus an elephant. Yeah. But in the abstract, it was always the same advice. And you I realized a that of, there's a heart, there's mm. kidneys, there's liver, right? right? There's a spine. And I realized that there's this overriding uniformity to designing of things, right? And basically, at that point, I realized, okay, this is a huge opportunity. And I left the mm. corporate job and founded a company called iDesign, mm-hmm. devoted for the sole purpose of doing nothing but design. And the whole... And the whole uh, idea was just utilizing this universal taxonomy of how you design software systems, right? Mm-hmm. And then superimposing on top of that microservices is yeah. a hand in glove. Right. Hey, Richard.
1: Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is. It must be that happy time again.
0: Yeah. It's time to give Yuval an endpoint to our new shut the front door service. Nice. <laughs> I mean, he did have to close the door earlier. <laughs> shut the front door (laughs) it's actually time to give away a music to code by collection to one lucky member of the net rocks fan club Uh, music to code by is a set of 25 minute pomodoro sized quiet and groovy instrumentals that have been scientifically designed to promote focus it will get you into a state of flow and keep you there .NET Rocks fans all over the world are being more productive with Music to Code by. See what all the fuss is about. Check it out at music to code buy.net. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Sean M. Flynn. Congratulations, Sean. Golf clap for you, golf sir. Golf clap for Sean. And uh, where better to give a golf clap, but in Orlando, Florida? <laughs> Land of much golf. Land of much golf. And Sean just won the Music to Code by collection. That's uh, probably 12 tracks. 12, 25 minutes 13. Soon right? to be 13. It's not going to stop. Yeah. And uh, if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big get free stuff button, answer a few questions and join the .net rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .net rocks fan club. And you all, now it's your turn. If you had $5,000 to spend today, on technology, what would you buy? I know. You'd buy a
2: farm tractor.
1: <laughs> <laughs> a smart tractor. Farmer you all. An IoT
2: tractor. Yeah. Which, you know, actually, IoT is, is actually emerging out of the world of microservices. Which right, sure. We can talk sure. about how every button on your shirt is going to be a service, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Okay, yeah. And an actor at that, okay? Yeah, an actor, yeah. So, going back to what I said a little bit before about the motivation f- that I had for doing microservices is mm. different than what led the industry going there today. So the industry is going there today because it didn't do it 10 years ago. Mm. So what does it mean? If you didn't accept the notion that every class should be a service, that service should be something very, very granular, then you had to stop at the st- scope of a big system. Mm. And that means you are boxed into this giant monolith of a service. Now, a giant monolith of a service is completely incomprehensible. It's a giant monolith. Nobody can understand the insane complexity inside. Mm -hmm. There's this incredible complexity on the outside where you superimpose all the behaviors and the features on top of the giant service. Mm. And so that created an enormous amount of pain. Because I did not embrace services at the granular level, there was an enormous amount of self-inflicted pain with a giant monolith. So 10 years later, they're saying, okay, the giant monolith was a bad idea, Let's break it down into smaller services. So, so, bravo for catching up on that aspect. But what I fear is happening now is something actually even worse. And the reason is merely breaking down a giant monolith into smaller services without a supporting taxonomy and without a supporting technology because they're still trying to do it, say, over HTTP, which is completely wrong, right? Okay. That creates even a bigger mess than the giant monolith, Mm -hmm. okay? So, the moment you go granular, You can't go granular by keeping the same protocols and the communication. For example, I'm communicating with you two right now using a protocol called English language and and verbal. right? Mm -hmm. So I'm communicating using words and maybe some hand gestures and eye movement. But that's actually a very uh, uh, broad communication mechanism. It's not the fastest one. It's probably not a good protocol to talk to my liver. Probably not. Probably not. Or to my heart. Your liver with doesn't
0: understand the English language. The
2: language does understand, and it wouldn't be fast enough, both enough. Okay, and so with my internal components, I use completely different protocols. There are still services, right? Sure. But I don't use an external protocol. I use an internal, highly specialized protocol. Okay. So, so, so just to, Richard mentioned the actor model and all of that stuff.
0: Um, Microsoft's Orleans project is a is a sort of actor model service that they used in uh, the Xbox uh, Live. And I mean, have you looked at that? How far does that
2: take you? So that's the next evolution of services. Okay. So actors are services, but not every service is an actor. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if you think about, uh, the idea of actors solve a different problem than services. Okay. The problem space of services is always
0: really interesting to me. This is really interesting to me because when what you're describing sounds just like an actor with added security and encryption and all of that stuff.
2: Uh, no, so all about security and encryption, all of that, that would be the scope of a component, right? Actors in this analogy would be the individual cells. So okay, more yeah, granular yeah. than the... Component. Way more granular than services, I yes. See. So if, if in a world of every class as a service, you would have... Uh, Ideally, you know, 100, 200 services in your application. Right. Now I'm exaggerating. It could be a sure. dozen or so, okay? Yeah. In a world of Actor, every record is a service. Every integer is a service, mm. okay? So that's truly now an explosion of things, okay? Mm. So um, Actors solve a different problem in that respect, and they require also, again, a different communication protocol, sure. okay? So. When, when the industry today is trying to do microservices, but still using things like Web API and HTTP, that's dead wrong, right? You have to evolve a different protocols, different instantiation mechanism, a different hosting, right? Just like the things I was doing 10 years ago, we need to now adopt it at a more granular level. That's actually what the fabric lets you do. Yeah. And so, and of course you have to have the supporting taxonomy. Okay. So doing all of that will not would only catch up to what I've been saying 10 years ago. Okay. So now there's a new wave coming in. And to understand that wave, we have to understand the problem space of services. What motivated me 10 years ago to serve a class as a service is the complexity of putting the services together of because of the plumbing and the security and the hosting and the activation Mm. and all of that things that nobody should actually deal with. Right. Let's just uh, extract that all of our code, keep, keep the component only talking about The uh, business logic and the interaction of the services to manifest the feature. That's the only thing the service should do. Okay. That was the problem we've had writing business application about, say, 10 years ago. But 10 years ago have passed. Okay. 10 Mm -hmm. years have passed. And now we're facing a different set of problems. And the set of problems that we have today is that we've reached probably the limit of what you can actually code as a solution. You're not going to have, there's, there's a natural scope and size limit into how big a method or a service can do in order to add any kind of value. So now what we need is glue to integrate all of these things. Way more than that. So look at the, so let me ask you a different a different uh, question. There's yeah. an analogy. Yeah. What is the most powerful computer in the world? The in, brain. No.
0: Uh, okay, so it's the Chinese one? No, I don't know.
2: No, no, no. Hold on a second.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it was a trick question. It's a it's trick
2: question. The first, question. The first, iteration, <laughs> the first uh, uh, naive answer is, of course, the human brain. Yeah. But the real answer is all the people on the planet. I see. If the I collective. group all of them, I would actually get a much more powerful computer than a single individual. Right. Right? Yeah, yeah. That's a far bigger com- com- computational power, right? Sure. Now, the same is true uh, with individual computers. But the very reason we have teams and organization and companies is because an organization or a team is way more powerful in its capabilities sure. than an individual. An yeah, yeah. individual, if you take even the smartest person in the world, okay, with the best body, take the brain of Stephen Hawking, put it in the body of, of Arnold Schwarzenegger, mm. there's only so much that very capable uh, individual can actually do. There's so many, only so many hours in a day, right. so many inputs and outputs you can funnel to that person. That person could be incredibly efficient. But it's limited in its capability, right? right. So instead of what do we do? We get lots of people together. It doesn't have to be even a big combination, mm-hmm. but right. we get more of them. And now we can start being a bit more effective. We're not yep. more efficient, right? Nanaji, if you have a 10 man year project, giving it for one guy take is incredibly years. efficient, but it will take 10 years and nobody will wait 10 years. So giving it to 18 guys and waiting two years it's going to be incredibly less efficient, it's just more effective. Right. So, we start building teams. Not, and
1: you don't get it done in one year with 10 people, right? That would be perfect efficiency. That's that ne- right. No, never no. Works you out that you way. get it
2: with 18 people in two years, two years. which is 3.6 times less efficient, yes. right? Yeah. Okay. but more effective. But more effective. And then so we start building teams, organization, and companies, and eventually markets, and so on. Okay, that's how the world actually operates, mm-hmm. okay? Now, it turns out that we use software to solve real-life problems, right? Software always tries to mimic problems in the real world. And the problems we try and solve today are incredibly connected. And the level of complexity is, is insanely high. You can never actually solve all the complexity and the changes in the scope of a single application. Mm. So just like we realize that features are aspects of integration, mm-hmm. the business value of what we try and do can only now be solved by a mass of interacting services, interactors. So now if you're saying if if... I'm trying to solve a very complex problem. I'm not going to try and solve it by having a really, really capable actors. In order to solve a complex problem, what I would try and do is I would have really, really dumb actors and I would actually program the system or the world as a network of these actors mm-hmm. operating in the context of some kind of a fabric or some kind of a supporting strata, right? Mm-hmm. The ultimate example here is the human brain in the respect that you have about a trillion neurons which individually are feeble and do absolutely nothing right but the program in your brain is the re- is the network of these actors put sure. together right sure. and so using this you can solve very very complex problems without actually ever changing the design of the computer mm-hmm. or the way it's put together and so the uh, emergence of the actor model is an attempt of solving this super complex problem of connectivity and complexity mm-hmm. by having relatively very simple services to the point that the ultimate actor turns on and turns off something. That's it, right? Or yeah. maybe compares two numbers or something really, really trivial. Right. But then you can actually have lots of them, right? And net result is that not only does this actually enables you to solve very complex problems, it also solves it in a very concurrent and high-throughput manner. And the reason is...
1: comes across really maintainable, right? You have these nice granular bits that you can work on. Get rid of the monoliths. You actually
2: don't work on the bits anymore. You work on the network of the bits. Right. And you program the network as opposed to the individual thingies. Okay? So, taken to the ultimate extreme, in such a world, I was actually wrong when I said every class is a service. I should have said Every record is a service. Every integer is a service. That is actually the way we are going, maybe in another 10 years. It's not, 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 none of these things go overnight. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We have this big vision, the picture, and then we make these stepping stones getting there. Okay. So if
0: I can use your analogy for actors for a minute, so my, and I'm trying to draw this down to some sort of technical, uh, you know, technical representation here. Um, actors, as I understand, work best when they represent a user or a device or, Something. This is how I, the actor model has been explained to me. So to think of actors as these dumb little things that add two and two for the purpose of you know general compute, you know that's that's a,
2: a totally different but story. Tell me isn't something it? in the CPU on your laptop right now is not exactly what you have. Don't you have individual gates doing something? Well, sure, very trivial. Sure, but, but you're you make... talking about compute,
0: whereas actor model to me has always been described as. Actors represent users, or you know, game players, or whatever. Yeah, so little state baubles.
2: That's another misconception. Actors probably shouldn't have state. The state of the system is the relationship between the actors. Okay, it is a graph of relationship. That is the state of the system. Okay, you don't maintain memory in an in individual neuron in your brain. You maintain right. it by the relationship between your neurons. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's the way we're gonna actually do it. Now, one of the things that confuses people is because the technology at hand today, twenty sixteen, the most advanced technology that's just emerging, the fabric, is not even giving us that, right? Yeah, yeah. And Microsoft is muddling the water here with with putting state and behavior inside the same actor. All of that will have to change, all of that will go away eventually. It's a Mm. very rough cut of what this thing should actually look like. Okay. Now, we have a very strong business case for doing it, and that's the Internet of Things, the IoT. We're not going to program the IoT using if and else. I hope that's clear. That's not going to happen. And we're not going to program the IoT by modeling it a la object orientation or even service orientation with an instance of a service for every widget in the real world. That's also not going to happen. Okay. Nobody can maintain it. Nobody can manage all these billions of instances and such. What we can actually do is model it using actors. And what we can actually do is we can actually have in a world where we have trillions and trillions of devices, which is where the IoT is going, right? Mm. With every article of closing, your car alone would have thousands of these things. That's mm-hmm. actually where we are going. We can actually start modeling locally individual actors doing these things, and then aggregator and so on. And actually, we're going to build an organization. Mm. Just like a company is an organization of people where the product of the company is the organization of those individual brains into a hive brain that does things right mm-hmm. typically limping along it's not perfect right but it's way more capable than an individual and again, right? you're
1: trading this effectiveness for efficiency
2: that's right mm-hmm. and then what do you do you program the organization using its structure you arrange the business units and this business unit is doing this and this is doing that right. that's how you program an organization yeah and that will be our program Well, individually, the individuals themselves may do something, just a cog in the wheel, something very simple. They're just actors in this context, okay?
1: Uh, I want to jump back to something you mentioned about, you know, you don't use HTTP, it seems to me that as we drive this service model deeper down into, you know, finer and finer granularity, you, you always need communication, but the protocols have to be smarter. They have to know what the most efficient way to communicate uh, yes. is at the level they're
2: at. That's right. And the, po- the protocol we're going to use is of course going to be messaging based, mm-hmm. right? So when your brain wants to say to the heart, pump blood faster because I need to run now or right. whatever, right? you actually send a message to the heart, right? Right. You don't flip a switch in your brain that turns on the heart. You send a message to the heart, and the heart will get to it. Yeah, and it decides how it's going
1: to implement it. And it decides
2: how it's going to implement it, exactly. Mm -hmm. And then inside the heart, there's chambers and all of these things that actually have to do it, right? But your heart, your brain doesn't actually understand the intricacies of the structure of the heart. Sure. Mm -hmm. Or for that matter, how the liver works on the metabolism, right? Right, yeah. And so, you send messages. Nor does it
1: need to know. Nor
2: does it need to know. And so, it may actually just drip a little bit more adrenaline into your bloodstream, eventually getting to the heart pacemaker and, right. and ticking it up, right? And so you don't send a word to it or an email or anything. You do a, a very specific message on an incredibly fast protocol. Mm-hmm. It right? could be the nervous system, the circulatory system to do it. And so HTTP is just incredibly ill-suited for that. And I'm not discounting the value of web services. We absolutely need web services sure. to talk between the big things, right? right? But that's between the individuals or the organization. It's not inside. It's not one protocol rules them all. No, no, no. But it, no. it sounds
1: like we need to get to a place where this is fairly automatic. Like that yes. protocol
2: selection is also ah. plumbing. Yes, exactly, and that and that goes back to the fabric because mm-hmm. what we need to deal with. Is an abstracted way of dealing with the broadcasting of the messages Mm -hmm. over uniform fabric, right? And I say, you know what, fabric, you want to use queues or buffers or direct messages or, or threads. What do I know? I mean, it's plumbing. It's plumbing. You you figure it out, right? (laughs) Let you figure it out, right? And that's exactly where we are going. Mm -hmm. So at the
0: end of the day, when you have all these services that are granular and you, you have to have something now that sort of puts them together into a feature, aren't we left with a programming language?
2: uh yes and that goes back so we're writing to the comment a comment of what i had before in the last interview we did the business on business architecture architect. yeah so the interview i did with you guys uh, five years ago was about this very idea that the job of developers and architects would never be to implement a feature it would be to come up with a box of parts a box of components that you can put together into anything mm-hmm. now the developers How and the, does the feature emerge ah, developers and architects never understand the feature fully and there's always a communication gap we need the reflecting image of the software architect in the form of a business architect. Somebody understands added value to the customer and what customer A wants as opposed to customer B, and gluing those things together. The best way of doing that is not using if and else and semicolons in a programming language, but hopefully in some kind of a visual language, maybe orchestrating in the form of workflows. Some kind
0: of
1: declarative system. uh,
2: Highly visual, highly declarative. In fact, why have a business architect do it? Have the end customer doing it.
1: Whoever uh, understands the domain the best.
2: Right. And I'll take it a step further. Why not have an AI do it? Yeah, and now you understand that's not
1: going to cause any trouble at no, all yeah, 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 sure. everything's going to be fine with oh, us yeah no problem <laughs> yes. there
2: <laughs> yes and I, I can do a little come with me if you want to leave <laughs> <laughs> yes. so so the problem we're gonna we, we're we seeing now is that on we have this divergence we hit the fork in the road okay yeah we've hit the we've completely maxed out the capability of developers to producing more if and else at maintaining it. They're already (laughs) completely saturated. This is is a dead end, okay? You're going to have t-shirts that say if else with a circle and a line through (laughs) it, right? (laughs) That's that's gone, right? No more if else. No more. And developers and architects are going to come up with a taxonomy of the building blocks. And again, I don't want to belabor the point too much. There's a very strong taxonomy of what are services, how they should actually interact. And once you understand the taxonomy, you can take it a step further. You can say, are there also real-time consistent patterns into how the interaction should look like, and the answer is yes. There's all these structural things that we have to deal with. Developers can implement the building blocks. Across the great divide, we should have something like business architects that glue them together into the required behavior that the business expects. And that also explains the push that Microsoft is now doing with Azure. All Microsoft is doing with Azure is giving you a box of parts, You mentioned the the uh, cognitive API, that's one part of it, but there's already more than a dozen of these things, okay? And incidentally, you also have to have a supporting process doing it. And we can have a whole session of how the industry butchered Agile, okay? They Mm. tried to implement feature using Agile, and that is dead wrong. Agile is not a programming technique. Agile is not... uh, uh, something you need to do design with. Agile is an assembly process. Mm -hmm. You take existing components and you put them together to implement the user stories. That's it. And one of the reasons Agile is such a dead end in the wild today is because people try and use it as a design technique or no design at all and then just stumble along through the feature, which of course cannot actually ever happen because remember, features are always aspect of integration, not implementation. And Agile, it's a very core, actually emerged in Toyota in the 50s as a way of assembling cars just in time using lean manufacturing, right? Mm. And so as we move forward, we're going to have these boxes full of microservices, fuel pumps, hearts, livers, and so on. And we're going to have to put them together, hopefully using a very declarative visual way of doing things. And then you can do user stories and agile and so on. But
0: are we getting back to the fundamental problem of, of computer programming and intent, which is if you make something so high level that a secretary could put together a system, then you don't have the granularity that a programmer has to put together something that actually works. Uh, so how do you expect, you know, even an AI to use this high level declarative visual language, whatever it is? Okay. So first when, of all, when you don't provide the, enough details to them to enable to smartly put together
2: systems. Uh. So there's several fallacies in what you just said. Fallacy, educate me. The first fallacy is you assume that programming actually does work, but yeah. it doesn't work because <laughs> most projects are failure. They don't meet the deadline, or commitments, or budgets, or, and our life is defect. But it clearly can work, and it, it does. It clearly can work. In many but times. Usually, it doesn't work. Okay. okay, most projects are failures. The real uh, fallacy is that you assume that you have to know everything in advance, and that is a fallacy. Okay, you don't. All you have to understand is the core required behavior. So if you look at any business context, I could have 200, 300, 400 of these very minute user stories and use cases and required behaviors, mm-hmm. right? But most of them are just variation of other things. They are not uh, unique. They're just the happy case, the sad case, the incomplete case we did just for that customer over there, okay? In any business context, there's a very small set of truly core business use cases. And
1: when you start small, you're talking like Four to six.
2: Yes, I'm talking a really small number. I've had this experience
1: of going through a hundred user stories and saying they fall into five piles.
2: Yeah. If that could be three, even, right? Okay. So now the job of the architect is to identify those three, four, five, six use cases, core use cases, and then turn around on a sign and come up with a smaller set of building blocks, your terminology, the smaller set of building blocks that you can put together to satisfy each of the core use cases. Now, what do we know about all the other use cases? Even those that are going to come up 10 years from now. We don't even know them. We know they're just variation of the core use cases. Mm -hmm. And as such, what they represent is a different interaction between your building blocks, not a different decomposition thereof. So now as the requirements evolve, your design does
0: not. But you're describing programming.
2: No. The programming is what happens inside those small set of building blocks. Right. Okay? the act of implementing the hundreds of use cases is putting those building blocks together. Sure. But there are layers though, right? That that, that could be done. We have
0: objects, we have strings, we have, you know, tools that we have. We put them together in small functions and then we put systems
2: together that call those functions. At some point there has to be logic. Yeah. So there's programming inside individual components, Mm -hmm. right? But as far as the business is concerned, the feature, the Mm -hmm. required behavior for the customer is never inside any individual components. It's the integration no, of those things. No, I understand now, that. Integration, integration doesn't have to be done in code.
0: But integration does require logic. And it yes, does require course. essentially the same kind of abstract
2: thought that programmers use. Ah, so, but the question is, I agree, the question is, is it going to be done by programmers? right. So not all programming has to be done by programmers.
0: Well, and there have been many what they called 4G systems yes. that were supposed to have solved this problem, and they they always fail because right. they're they're too high level.
2: And they don't do the right taxonomy of what are the services. There's many reasons why these things actually fail. So
0: the stuff that you have done, you have success stories that you can share with us? About Absolutely.
2: Yeah? It's the iDesign customer base. Great. We've done it hundreds of times all over the world. It's incredibly repeatable. Great. Great.
1: The, the interesting thing about this is you think about, you start thinking in those terms. Part of the composition of a given application, then the workflow is actually implemented by the user. Of course. When you fill in text boxes and click on a button, you implemented a workflow physically. That's to, right. You know, it, the programmer built each of those pieces. There was a decision by somebody involved in UX to put those pieces in a visual order that encouraged that workflow. That's but right. in the end, the operator operated it. That's and right. Actually, you know, implemented that workflow.
2: That's right. So
1: your features are
2: implemented by your customers. No, the required behavior mm-hmm. is something that ultimately the user can. I even didn't mean do.
0: implemented, but um, de- designed essentially.
2: The required features behavior are- is always dictated
1: by the end customer, yeah, yeah, is it yeah.
2: not? The Developers so, don't understand the required behavior. It's not their business. They don't. They're just they're, sure. The
1: the bouncing after these high level languages getting more abstract is back to this efficiency efficacy problem. Right? That's right. Yeah. It's it's going to be it's going to be less efficient, but it's going to be more, more effective. effective. That's right. And so the and in, and every time we go too high level, it becomes so inefficient it's no longer used. It's only, exactly mm. that's so exactly right. The, but it's a wave. We're going up and down and up and down and up yep. and down. We push back down to efficient, pull back up to effective. Sure.
2: And maybe this time maybe this time now maybe you could say it's not every user it's just my admin on the customer side doing it yeah yeah maybe it's just my business expert as a service providing that customization sure. right so there's many ways of skinning this cat at various level okay. of granularity of who does what right but this is exactly what microsoft is pushing now very hard if you look at what they're doing right. now what is it called logic apps yeah right? logic yes. apps yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah that's exactly where we are heading right? right now microsoft is always is stumbling into things uh, elephant in the chinese uh, uh, porcelain store right bull in the china shop bull in yeah. the china <laughs> shop not providing just the right taxonomy not the right tools and, and not so necessarily and so forth. having
1: a plan they, they and not having they just a plan keep putting parts in boxes and That's putting right. them in front of us and yeah. we see what happens they've always tried
0: to abstract things at the right level right you know for for the work that we want to do um oh. and uh, you know some have succeeded in the time and some have not mm-hmm. but you know, that's is, this is the dance that we're describing. So anyway, to get back to your, your customer base and your success stories, um, maybe we can, if you have any of
2: that stuff published that, you know, so we know what this stuff looks like. Yes. Yeah, so unfortunately, we can't publish the things as is. Right? Yeah. Right. Sure. Uh, however, I do master classes all over the world where I share these ideas and techniques. And we, we have an, in, what we call the iDesign alumni, which is a group of people who took our master classes mm. and with those people on a private forum we share these things and we go through exercises and we yeah. took, last year we took a massive system we did for a customer and we made them all do it okay, and go through it, right? So, But there's really nothing more to it than just good engineering Sure, right? It's just good software engineering Great, well,
0: hey man, thank you This has been very un- enlightening for me personally and uh, I'm sure the listeners as well, so thanks to all Absolutely. Thank you guys. I All hope right. it won't
2: take another five years.
0: Yeah, maybe. <laughs> we'll be back.
2: <laughs> I'll be back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll see you next time okay. on .NET Rocks.